Uh, let's go ahead and pray again. Uh, I know I need it, and uh, we all do too, just to shift gears once again. Father God, you are good. Your word is holy and eternal, and we need it. We need life, and your word is our life. Um, thank you for that. Uh, you didn't have to do that, but you did, and we thank you for your powerful word tonight. I ask, Lord, that the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. We covered the entire book of Romans in my talk last time. That was huge, right? One through chapter one through 16. Uh, today, we get to just bring it down to two chapters and about two, a chapter and a half or so. And so I'll be teaching through Romans chapter one. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to that. Last week, I last time I spoke, actually, I mentioned Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And uh, I want to bring him up again for two reasons. Um, just to, because I, he's great. I want you to know him. Uh, brilliant. He was a medical doctor, uh, pastor, reverend as well. Um, he covered Romans in over 350 sermons. <laughs> 350. So it took him, not like us, it's going to take us about seven months to go through Romans. It took him 12 years. Yeah, I loved how your eyes got big when I said 12, and then they just popped out of your brain when I said years. <laughs> So if, well, again, and I, I mentioned this again last time, and I'll probably refresh your memory on this. If while you're reading and you're studying, you feel like we are at breakneck speed going through it, just zooming through everything, uh, I want you to be encouraged uh, because we are. We're really going fast. We are just skimming the surface, and I'm trusting the Holy Spirit, as you've already realized, that he's just giving you what you need when you need it, all right? And you're learning it as you go. And I shared this quote with you last time as well. And I want to remind you of it also. And I wanted to share it with you again. God's word is like water shallow enough for a child to come and drink and without fear of drowning and deep enough for a, theolo a theologian to swim in without ever touching the bottom. Isn't that so true? As you're reading through Romans, you feel that too, as, as we go through. So I just want to encourage you again, if you ever feel a little overwhelmed or underbrained, maybe um, you're in good company. And I've asked before, and I'm probably going to ask this again, that as we study Romans, that we really look into the word, we keep these four principles in mind, that our, we understand our origin. Our origin is who and where we've come from. Our meaning, that what we were created to do. Our morality, how we were designed to live. And our destiny, where we'll ultimately go. Because in our understanding of those four principles, we can sift through the messages that we're receiving from the world. And we are receiving messages from the world. How do we understand the blogs that we read, the books that we read, politicians that we hear from, the, debate, the debates going on tonight, of course, uh, preachers, teachers like me, really any source of information that we're presented with, um, and we can ask, what is that? What are they? What is this saying about my origin, my meaning, my morality, my destiny? Is it in keeping with God's word? And so if we know what God's word says on those four things, then we can quickly filter out. I'm telling you, when you get quick at that, you, you, you're not as stressed in your life about things. It's like when you first learn to drive and you're just like, you have to barely, you can barely keep your eyes off of the front of your car. And now that's just so natural. You can drive with ease. I want us to be like that. I want us to be able to move with ease and quickly say, yep, nope, nope, yes, 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 no. So that's my goal. My goal is to have you that. Also, that in mind, my goal is not to cover Romans. 
My goal is not to get through Romans. My goal is to teach you to think biblically. And we're going to use Romans for this go around. We've used Hebrews. We've gone through Hebrews and Ruth and, and Esther, Ephesians, and so on. But we're studying Romans or whatever book. That's never the goal. It, we, we'll use that and we will get through that. But we want to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. That's the goal. Because when we do that, when we think biblically, we see the world and we see ourselves in the light of the truth of God. And if we can get that right, it's going to make all the difference. Amen. All right. So I've also outlined Romans, and I shared this again as the last time, into the seven hours, not the hours of time I'd like to speak. Hours like yours and, and mine, the seven hours of Romans, and that'll help us to look ahead how we can personally embrace what we're reading through in Romans. So I shared that. Our God and his gospel, ourselves and our need, our savior and how we saved our helper, the Holy Spirit, our understanding of God's word, our identity and mission, so important, our access to God's love and power. And I encourage you once again to save some of these things and bookmark them or literally make a bookmark out of them and keep them. And um, you can get that again on my website. All right. So Romans. In the overview from that first lesson I said in the opening chapters, we'd see God's righteousness. Good news. Yay, God. God's righteousness available, plain for all to see. And we reject that. We reject that. That's our nature. And so we're in big trouble. So our key point then is not that I'm okay, you're okay, as the famous book has said, but God is, is great. God is great. So we use that as the beginning jumping point for it. And we move forward now into an epistle, which is a, yeah. you know, your Greek. How'd you do on the little Greek opening there? Quiet time. Was that fun? Learn with Greek. You're going to be so great. You're going to be impressing Joe on Sundays when he says, what book is, what language is the Bible written in? And you just say, you know, on all your Greekness. All right. So Paul introduces himself in this epistle. He says that he's a slave of Jesus. That means he's conscripted, conscripted to Jesus, and he's been sent by Jesus or commissioned by Jesus. And he says of himself, last of all, as to one untimely born, he, Jesus, appeared to me because uh, Paul didn't get commissioned by Jesus like the other disciples did. Uh, he didn't meet Jesus in person before Jesus ascended. Uh, Jesus met up with him when he was on a mission to go murder Christians. Good times, Paul. All right, Paul um, points to who he is. And did you notice? His identity is entirely defined by his relationship to Jesus. And I cannot stress that enough, right? That's exactly how each of us need to be. Who you are is not who you've dated or married or never married. Who you are is not where you've come from. It's not your family. It's not your past. It's not your failures. And guess what? Turns out it's not your successes either. Who you are is not what keeps you busy. It's not your job. It's not your hobbies, your friendships, or your vacations. Who you are is not in your children or lack thereof. At least it's not supposed to be. Think of areas that you find disconnected and disappointed in with what is going on in any of those areas of your life. If you find that sense of disconnect and dissatisfaction, you can absolutely guarantee that you have picked up your identity and moved it away from the feet of Jesus and back into your own hands as you grip it. So your identity, so important. It should simply be, I am his, I am his. And anytime you feel that dissatisfaction, 
in someone else in your life, in the past, and where you're headed, and all this stuff. You just say, Lord, I just, okay, I'm not getting that. I'm bringing me back to that, right? I think if we can really get that straight, if we can really be solid and land firm on that, I'm going to say 90% of the stress that we have in our life is just going to go. It's going to go. The more you anchor yourself, your identity firmly, I want you to visualize, I want you to picture and just an anchored on Jesus. The more you anchor your identity firmly in Jesus Christ, the less volatile, the less unstable your emotions, the less unstable or volatile your mental state, your confusion is, your, even your physical health. It all comes in. It tightens up everything. Love God with your heart, soul, mind, strength that covers every aspect of us, doesn't it? It's the center of our true identity when we do that. In fact, later in his ministry, listen to what Paul wrote. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing who I am in Christ, knowing Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I count everything loss, everything he could have had. And he had a lot. All those things, I count them as what? Rubbish, in order that I may what? Gain Christ, gain Christ. I am his. Say that over and over and over. Put it on a post-it note. Tattoo it backwards on your forehead so when you look in the mirror, it's forward. No, don't do that, that's silly. That's very silly. We're gonna start a cult if we do that. So, Romans chapter one, in a mere nine words in, if you're reading it in the Greek, it's actually nine words of this letter. Paul gets right to the point of what he's all about, what he's focused on. And he really hammers it. He says it over and over and over and over and over again in this opening. And whenever somebody does something and it's in that tight of a space, you need to ask, that's a lot. Like, I mean, I talk about avocados and chocolate a lot, but that's like a lot, a lot, Paul. And so highlight these. I've given you a printout of uh, the passage in your there and you can box it or highlight it, whatever you want. But I want you just to look for these as we move through them quickly. Um, he says the gospel of God, the gospel um, promised beforehand by God, the gospel of his son, gospel he is eager to preach, the gospel he's not ashamed of, the gospel that reveals the righteousness of God. Do you sense a theme? What's Paul all about? The gospel. <laughs> Why is he hammering that point to this audience so many times in the opening of this letter, why is he doing that? Well, in Greek, the word gospel is euangelion, euangelion. That's a fun word to learn. You go and press Joe on Sunday. <laughs> euangelion, Joe, what do you think about that? It means good news. Check it out. That, that word was not unfamiliar to our audience. The, um, the Greek Christians that he was talking to, the Jews in Rome as well, had heard that word. It's been around for quite a while. That idea of a gospel is not a Christian idea. In fact, when I think of the word gospel, maybe you do too. When you think of the word gospel, I think of a gospel choir, right? I think, uh, go tell it on the mountain, good news, the gospel. Uh, Jesus, you know, he's the answer to everything. But I think of that when I think of, of the gospel. Paul began proclaiming this gospel of Jesus Christ, of God, of his son, that he's eager to preach it. He's not ashamed of it, that it reveals the righteousness of God. That's a lot of mentioning that. Why? Well, Rome already had its own euangelion. 
they already had their own gospel. It was a different gospel. It had spread across the empire. There was an inscription that was found on a government building dated in 6 BC in Prien, modern day Turkey, and it referred to Caesar Augustus. And this is what it says. The birthday of Augustus has been for the whole world, the beginning of the gospel, the euangelion concerning him. Listen to the ways that Caesar is described. The most divine Caesar we should consider equal to the beginnings of all things, for when everything was falling into disorder and tending toward disillusion, he restored it once more and gave the whole world a new aura. Caesar, the beginning of life and vitality, has, I wonder if he's like, and write this part down about me and my life, you know. <laughs> has brought our life to the climax of perfection, who being sent to us as our descendants as savior, has put an end to war. <laughs> oh, you're so cute. Bless your heart, right? Has put an end to war and has set all things in order. And having become God manifest, Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times. Yeah. So they, they had heard the word euangelion. They had heard gospel, all right? So do any of the wording and the phrasing of that sound familiar to you? Does it sound biblical to you? If you just popped out Caesar's name, couldn't you just put Jesus' name? Doesn't that make you go, well, maybe Jesus isn't the real deal? No, because what are imitations based on? Reality. Reality. So here comes Paul. He's following up the writings of Matthew and Mark and Luke. And also they proclaimed the gospel. And it's not Caesar. Spoiler alert. It's Jesus Christ. And Caesar was dead, long gone, by the time Paul wrote this. Um, and he had been knifed in the back by a mob. And uh, there was not even a salad dressing named after him, you know, by this point. So he's no resurrected Messiah. And Paul is repeating this over and over and over again in his epistle. What's an epistle? And that's, we have, this is the true gospel. He hammers it. This is the true gospel. And Paul has been amongst the Greeks and the barbarians, he says, wise and the foolish. And now he says in verse 15, I'm eager also to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. And I think Paul may have been inspired by, um, I think Paul may have been inspired by uh, another person who had a challenged past, not unlike his, who loved to get real with people, the man in black himself. Johnny Cash. <laughs> Paul's been everywhere, man, but he hasn't been to Rome yet. And he wants to get there so that they can, what does he say? Be mutually comforted by one another's faith. Did you notice the connection there from Paul's eagerness to the next section where he says, not ashamed? You know, often people who are eager are confused with crazy. They're over the top. They're a bit too much. Uh, people like this often hear that they're making other people around them feel uncomfortable or they're taking this religion stuff too seriously. Simmer down, someone might say. For example, when you fall in love, you are over the top. You're crazy you know, about that relationship. You're all excited. You're willing to make a, a fool out of yourself. And uh, maybe you're familiar <laughs> with... <laughs> I don't care who knows it. Buddy, uh, not now. Uh, can you please go back to the uh, to the pit? I'll come visit you in a little while, okay? I didn't know you had elves working here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, make sure I didn't lose my make sure I didn't lose my screen there on that. But we get like that, and we should be like that. And I hope it doesn't ruin your image of Paul to associate it with that. But I think you get the point. Let's get a little bit R O W D Y, right? A little bit rowdy and eager, and lose that shyness that we have about sharing the good news 
What we have, listen, what we have is life. What you have in the gospel that you know that you've been given is hope. It's, it's good news. Our world is full of bad news. We have life. We have hope. People need it. Be eager. <laughs> be excited. Don't be ashamed. Be like Paul, right? From what Paul says next, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, is God's what? Power for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For the righteousness of God is revealed, and we need that. From faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous by faith will live. And Paul brings us to the next big idea in this message, faith. And this word is a Greek word, uh, pistis, and it's in Romans over 40 times. That's a good Greek word to remember as well, if you want to make a list of what you're going to be impressing Joe with on Sunday. Paul says that the revealing of God's righteousness is connected to faith. Faith that the one who hears must have. Faith that defines how we live if we're to be considered righteous. Faith that ultimately is the only way to please God. And on day five of lesson two, I asked you to draw a box around your the text, righteousness of God, and connect it to the next verse, wrath of God, because Paul takes an abrupt turn from God's righteousness being revealed to his wrath being revealed. And I want you to notice in verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed where? In the gospel, beginning and ending in faith. In verse 18, the wrath of God is also revealed, but from where? From heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness because what can be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. So we have the euangelion, the gospel manifest in Jesus Christ, who has revealed God's righteousness and heaven itself now, a metaphor for the judgment hand of God, Revealing his wrath. Why? Because faithless people suppress the truth, and God's not going to have any of that. The gospel is that truth. Has anyone ever been asked by a child or maybe a husband where something like the milk is in the refrigerator? You probably know where I'm going with this. I can feel it from the room here. And you call out, it's right there. You know, it's to the left of the mayo or whatever. And they call back, I can't find it. And you call out louder with the exact same directions as if that's going to make a difference because there's actually literally no other way to say it. Right next to the, you know, mayo, whatever. And you get this parlay of shouts going back and forth until you do what? You finally get up and you march to that fridge and you open that door with no attitude at all. <laughs> and you point to it and voila, right there, plain to see the mayo, as you said, right? And as simple and as petty as that example is, and it is, um, you can relate to the exasperation or maybe annoyance of someone not seeing what is so plain and obvious. Now, take that feeling and multiply it by like a gabillion, and that's God. When what can be known about him is plain as the mayo, right? Plain to them, and they choose to deny it. When Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on the donkey that week that we call Palm Sunday, the religious leaders were indignant, right? They're just losing their minds. They're, they're hearing people praise him as the Messiah. 
and they say, tell him to shut up. Tell those people to shut up. That's pretty much what they said. And they shout at Jesus and Jesus uses this clever phrase. It's a Hebrew idiom and he rebukes them. And he says, well, that's not going to do any good because if they keep silent, what? You remember that verse? The very stones are going to cry out. The very stones are going to cry out. All right. Now, the righteousness of, of God revealed is that obvious and interesting. That idiom that Jesus uses, even the stones will cry out, is found in Habakkuk chapter 2. And what other significant verse is also found in Habakkuk 2? It's the one that's the, one of the most quoted in the Old Testament, the righteous by faith will live. Right there. Same thing. And it's not like the truth of God is some vague idea that only the really sharp, smart people can figure out. Apparently not everyone can find the milk in the fridge, but God says that he has made his existence plain to all people. And he's revealed himself in the gospel through his son by the word of the prophets, miracles, and his resurrection from the dead. You cannot miss that. We call that special revelation. Then in verse 20, Paul says that God has been revealed in general or natural revelation. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen because they are understood through what has been made. As a result, there is no one who can say, I didn't see the mayo, right? I didn't see the whatever else I'm looking for. They can't say that. Why? They're without excuse. And from verses 21 to 32, Paul gives us the most difficult and honestly terrifying part of the gospel. Yes, all that sin and wrath and reminders of the propensity that we have toward depravity is part of the gospel. Because let me be clear on this. The gospel is really good news only because the bad news is so real. Listen, the gospel is really good news because the bad news is so real. And the bad news would just be petty and it would just be unfair and capricious if there wasn't good news. And the good news is that God's righteousness is revealed in and through who? Oh, sorry, not a trick question. In and through who? Notice I do that whenever I need to get some water, like, oh, say the word for him. I'm thirsty. It's in and through Jesus Christ. And it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You got that? All right. And that's kind of the happy part to preach. Yay. God, he's saving us. Woo. Team Jesus. We have power in the name. God's on our side. That's the cheap gospel. If you only preach it that way, that's the easy believies. It's safe to enjoy that. And that kind of good news, but it's mundane. And it's ultimately meaningless if it's not in light of the bad. How empty and useless is it to be cheering for good news when there's no alternative? Honestly, that's why so many people are leaving the church, right? For decades, the church has been preaching an impotent gospel. They remove the sting and there is a sting. Why would God, why would Paul have any reason to declare the righteousness of Christ overcoming the grave if it wasn't a reality and the grave is a reality? It would be meaningless of Jesus to have lived a sinless life and conquered death to, as it says in Hebrews 5, to become the source of eternal salvation for all who believe him. Who cares if we don't need to be saved? Why would he do that? But we do need to be saved. You're not thrilled with relief when you find out you have cancer. You're thrilled when you find out there's a cure. Why? Because a cancer diagnosis is terrifying. The good news is the cure. 
which again is meaningless if there isn't a disease. But we have preached Christ without the cross and the gospel, without the wrath of God. And that's no gospel at all. And those who preach to placate a congregation for fear of offending someone or losing a donor will have to answer for this. And I'm just going to skip a bit to make this point, but I'm going to return back to verse 23 in a second. Listen to first where Paul's going, all right? Although they fully know God's righteous decree, verse 32, that those who practice such things deserve to what? Die. They not only do them, but they also approve of those who practice them. The idea that people deserve to die is tough to swallow. Just like, oh, really? Ah, does he have to send them to hell? And you're sitting there as if you're not, um, you're going to hell yourself. I mean, if you don't have Christ, you're, you're going there too. All right. So the idea that people deserve to die is tough to swallow, but only if you haven't grasped how holy God is, how righteous God is, how awesome and awful that actually is. Recall that no man has ever seen the face of God and lived to tell about it. And those who were exposed to even the smallest fraction of God's glory came with their face emblazoned with his brilliance on it. God said to Isaiah in a vision to revealing part of his glory. And Isaiah, after seeing that, says, woe to me, I'm ruined. This is Isaiah who spoke the words of God because I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. This is the Isaiah, the man who actually spoke the words of God. And he heard the seraphim and they were calling out to one another saying over and over and over again, how holy God is. Do you know that there's only one attribute of God? that is ever repeated back to back. And it's not love, love, love. And it's not good, good, good. And God is love and God is good. But the only attribute of God that has ever been repeated back to back is holy, holy, holy. And that's the essential nature of God. And that's who God is. And everything flows from that. That's why we have to know we have to know the full gospel, the good and the bad and the ugly, 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 All right? And in case you missed any of the ugly, here's Paul's list. <laughs> the first up is important because it really covers all of what follows. As soon as we place anything in the spot designed for God, we exchange the glory of the immortal God for an image resembling mortal human beings or birds or four-footed animals reptiles and that's idolatry and idols aren't just some carved pieces of wood or stone some half-naked barbarian in some third world country is carving up no they're for sale at the mall at a car dealership at a travel agent a real estate office we raise them as their own we, we give them names we have birthday parties for them we pay for their college education we clock into them nine to five we hold them up and we post them on our facebook and our instagram idols anything or anyone that takes priority over God in your life, period. From idolatry, Paul says that the natural output of growth of this is not just idolatry, but specifically those who refuse to acknowledge their idolatry. The following speaks to the first three of the four principles I repeated, origin, meaning, and morality. 
we were designed by the creator in his image. We were designed and created to bear his image to one another. That's our origin. When we deny that, our meaning in life is skewed. So look at me here. If I'm, if I'm heading in this direction, I'm heading to God. My meaning in life is oriented toward him, right? My origin right behind me, my destiny straight in front. But when I'm skewed on that, I'm missing the mark and I'm not aimed toward God anymore. And this is no oopsie. I didn't know better. But Paul says and what follows is that God gave them, those who worship the creator, a creature rather than the creator, he gave them over to depravity and it manifests first, interestingly, in lust. Why? Because lust is the twisted evil side of the passion and zeal we should have for who? God. If you think of it, and I don't want to demean that, but if you think of it like lusting after God, you're just full of passion and zeal for him and you replace him, now it's lust because it's the evil version of that and it's on people and things and everything else that it shouldn't be on because it's done what? What happens here is that first act, um, act of lust breaks that holy design of man and woman who are in the perfect image of God and then it's dishonored in the bodies of those who exchange the truth for a lie. Sexual sin is an interesting top of the list order because sexual sin was rampant in Corinth. It was then and considered today still to be the most depraved and debauched of the cities in the Roman Empire. Paul was likely in Corinth, if you recall, in his third missionary journey while he was writing this epistle. So it was not only close to his heart because sexual sin strikes at the Imago Dei, the image of God in us, but it was right in front of him and all around him as he was writing, literally right there. So disturbed was Paul by writing about what he what he's writing about, he interrupts his dictation with this cleansing sentence, a brief doxology, if you will, a praise word, he says in verse 25, the creator who is blessed forever, amen, right? He like breaks into it, right? And he calls out in detail and he says, verse 26, for this reason, for this reason, God gave them over to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged the natural sexual relations with unnatural ones. Likewise, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed in their passions for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in themselves a due penalty for their error. And then he continues and describes this behavior as dishonorable, unnatural, shameless, deserving of personal bodily punishment and depraved all because, verse 28, they did not see fit to do what? Acknowledge God. Yes, but you're thinking, I know really good, kind, loving gay people. Guess what? That's not the issue. It's not the issue. And I'm going to address that more in just a minute, but let's continue because you might also know some of these people as well. These are people who are filled with every kind of unrighteousness, wickedness, covetousness, malice. They're rife with envy, murder, strife, deceit, hostility. They're gossips slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful contrivers of all sorts of evil. And just in case the teenagers in the room are like, well, that's not me, disobedient to parents, <laughs> senseless covenant breakers, which covers marriage. That's a breaking of the covenant. So adultery, heartless, ruthless. Do you know anyone on this part of the list? Of course you do. It's you. It's me. All right. You can thank me later. We didn't take 10, you know, turns going around, raising hands. Well, I've had that experience. All right. So is there any excuse for any of this behavior? No. Is there anyone who doesn't have the possibility in their heart to behave in any of those ways? And yes, I'm including homosexual and adulterous ways. No. If it's sin, you have the propensity for that sin in your heart. Why? Because you were born that way. And that's not something to be celebrated in a YouTube video. 
You were born that way. That's how, that's how this world is, right? I have homosexual sin in my own heart. I have adulterous sin in my own heart. I have envy in my heart too. Paul's point isn't to make a Santa Claus list and see who's been naughty or nice, because guess what? We've all been naughty. Mm -hmm. What does Paul say next? Therefore, you are without excuse, whoever you are, when you judge someone else. For what, on whatever grounds you judge another, you condemn yourself because you who judge practice the same things. I do not judge. I don't do that. <laughs> He's not talking to me. Oh, you're so cute. You're judging right now. <laughs> that is literally what that means. Are you arguing against the almighty God? The one who's holy, holy, holy? You judger, 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 right? I hope not, because verse two. Now we know that God's judgment is in accordance with truth against those who practice such things. And do you think, whoever you are, when you judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape God's judgment? Your judgmental spirit only serves to condemn you and worse, worse. Listen, it shows contempt for God. Ooh, don't do that. Verse four, or do you have contempt for the wealth of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, and yet do not know that it's God's what? Kindness that leads you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness, of your unrepentance and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up. There are a lot of things that would be really nice to store up. And this is not one of them. Do not store up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath when God's righteousness is revealed. Is homosexual behavior wrong? Yes. You would have to twist and contort and abuse the word of God to get any other interpretation than that. So why not just spend your energy trying to say that envy isn't wrong, adultery isn't wrong, or fill in the blank with any other sin du jour. It's sin. It's all sin. It's all wrong. And how does God respond to sin? Well, clearly, zero tolerance policy. You are storing up wrath if you have contempt for the wealth of his kindness, forbearance, and patience. Well, then why not just annihilate the sinners? Seems like that would be easy. Bye. <laughs> Blink. <laughs> like, I'm out, like gone, right? Okay, then how about this? How about this? How about this? Annihilate the sin inside of me. Just leave me here, but I just zip. Out it goes. That'd be super awesome. I had us all figured out when I was writing this. Jesus, uh, we, we accept him as a savior and then we get a new heart, but it's not a regular heart. It's a Teflon heart, so nothing sticks to it anymore. And problem solved. God did not consult me on any of this. All right. Our decision to follow Jesus Christ doesn't remove our free will, turns out. When he declared us righteous and he justified us, he just declared it. He didn't, we're not transmorgified. Right? You can get a personality transplant when you accepted Jesus Christ. You just got the Holy Spirit. Besides, if he immediately annihilated all the sinners, of course, well, all those kids out there will be gone. <laughs> <laughs> Teenagers, we love them. All right. So being justified, being declared righteous, is a once and done act. The moment we surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, we are also then sanctified. I mean, set apart as holy. That's pretty cool. You're set apart by God. You're not just any old rubbish anymore. You're not just out there with everybody else. You're set apart. You're sanctified as holy, all right? And we're also then becoming sanctified, which is awesome too, all right? Because we need that part. We're becoming holy. Listen, he says, he will reward each one according to his works, eternal life, 
to those who by perseverance in good works, that's our sanctification, becoming holy, we seek glory and honor and immortality. We're heading in those directions. That's not the worldly version of glory and honor. Like, look at me. Like, you won't be none of that, right? This is what being a Christian is all about. You become a Christian, but you're also what? You're being a Christian as well. It's once and done, and it's also ongoing. What did Paul open with in Romans 1, 17? The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, or another way to say that is beginning and ending in faith. When we begin and end in faith, why? Because the righteous live by faith. That's the key. Paul said it also in the letter that he wrote to the Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Good job. And the author of Hebrews said, without faith, it is impossible to please. God, you are so good. All right. If you were here on Sunday, you heard me elaborate a couple bits on, on that concept as I preached through James chapter uh, 2, 14 to 16. So where James says faith apart from works is dead, so we're clear there's no separating the two. When you come to Jesus in faith, you've been saved. That saving relationship begins a work in you that empowers you to then live by faith and produce works if you are not in faith that you're incapable of producing any works of any consequence because you are not sanctified you're not set apart for holy so then if you live in selfish ambition if you do not obey the truth but you follow unrighteousness there's no other way to be more clear about this but what paul has already said and here's what you have to look forward to dun 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 wrath and anger to those who live in selfish ambition and do not what obey the truth but follow what unrighteousness there will be affliction and distress in case you missed out on what wrath and anger meant affliction and distress on everyone who does evil on the jew first and also the greek and if you on the other hand do good and remember the only way to do that is if you have been declared righteous justified and you continue in the faith verse 10 but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good for the jew first and also the greek for there is no partiality with god all right and that's a hard teaching. It's a hard teaching. I get that. If you're living in a way that allows for continual sin against God's righteousness, then you're not obeying the truth. You are following unrighteousness. Who are you supposed to follow? Jesus Christ. If you're following him, is he ever going to lead you in the path of unrighteousness? Of course not. Of course not. Stop. Repent. Pray as Jesus taught us to pray that we would not be led into temptation, that we would be delivered from evil. And there's no more important thing that you could do right now is to make sure as you close this time together with me that you are in total submission to the tug of God on your heart. If you don't know what God has been speaking to you about in these past few minutes, pray, ask God. But I know this, I prayed specifically as I was preparing for this moment that God would not hold back his Holy Spirit from us, that we would have a fresh anointing of his power, that we would have a renewed desire for holiness in every corner and every aspect of our lives at whatever cost it has on us personally, that we would not just be a Bible study group, like a little club, but we'd be women who've seen the face of God. It's important to me.
it's important to me that we leave this room changed. And God's been working on our hearts, in each of our hearts, on something. And I prayed for a breakthrough for all of us tonight. And so we're going to close in prayer tonight, doing something we've never done before here. We're going to close reciting the only prayer that Jesus gave in direct response to the hunger of his disciples. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. And you need to do that today, too. I don't even know what to say to you, God. Just teach me to pray. I don't know how to change what I've done. I don't know how to fix how I am. I know how to repair my relationships. Just teach me to pray. We're going to close. We're going to say that together. I'll put the words on the screen because you probably memorized it in a variety of different versions. And we're going to close with this. Amen that. And then I'm going to take some, some questions at the end. Let's just pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Father God, you are good. We declare your love. We declare your truth. And we ask, Lord, that we would continue to live in that truth. In Jesus' name again. Amen. All right. Awesome. Awesome stuff. That is good.